Welcome in to Practical Wellness Radio. I'm Ted and Cody and I are super excited to have you guys in on our 10th episode at Practical Wellness Radio. Uh, 10 episodes, so we're pretty much experts at this. This will be the best podcast you've ever listened to, I'm sure of it. And part of that will have to do with the fact that we've got Bethany Praska on the show today. And uh, Bethany is currently manager of the Iowa River Landing Lululemon store in Iowa City, Iowa. But uh, she's got quite the collegiate track career, and we talk a lot about that. Some of her accolades include a two-time All-American, three-time Big Ten champion, ultra-marathoner, ran a 100-mile race. We touched on that at the end of the show, and that's probably my favorite topic. Um, She dives really deep into the whole thought press process of of attacking that and uh, kind of the toll it took on her. It's really, really intriguing. But, um, you know, being that Bethany is maybe one of kind of the most... Oh, decorated um, individuals as far as athletically that we we've had on the show to this part um, for our warm-up waves today we're talking about winning and um, you know winning is a weird thing right because um, you know chasing winning is is going to cause some setbacks like chasing after victory is going to cause setbacks chasing it may cause a lot of self-doubt and and chasing it isn't always fair you know just because you work the hardest towards something you still may not receive the justice and be beat by someone who you know you outworked and you know the question is why would you work so hard towards something when you know there's not a guarantee you're going to get it returned to you and i think when you think about it you know the only guarantee is if you don't chase it you're losing so the question is you know how willing are you to run towards victory when the distance is unknown. All right, and here we go. We're getting started with Bethany Praska. We're happy to have you. Bethany is, uh, I got to brag about you a little bit, Bethany, because this is pretty cool. I don't know if we've had anybody on the show to this point with some of these cool accolades. So Bethany is a two-time All-American, three-time Big Ten champion, ultra-marathoner, um, and all-around kind of a kind of a badass when you start you know, listing some of those things. She's also the manager of the Iowa River Landing Lululemon store in Iowa City, Iowa. And uh, first off, Bethany, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I think uh, just so everybody knows, what uh, can you tell us a little bit about those accolades? Um, and I know it's maybe a little bit hard to open up initially right away and start kind of bragging on yourself, but it's cool. And I think people people like to hear about it. So tell us about, uh, you know, the the All-American, the Big Ten champion. What, what, uh, what were those in? Those were in the 600 meter, 800 meter, and then the four by 400 relay. So those are the three Big Ten titles, and then All American in the 800 indoor and the four by four. We were second team All American for the outdoor relay. So yeah, track and field at University of Iowa, go Hawks! <laughs> I had four years of eligibility there, and it was. Man, I just have the best things to say and to brag about all of 
those coaches and the people who pour their time in there. But I was a late bloomer, so it, I didn't start running the 800 until my junior year of college. And my coach was willing to take a chance and had never coached someone in the 800 meter. So uh, we, you know, just risked it together and figured let's explore what what we could do in this area. So I stayed with the four four by 400 meter relay and had amazing athletes on my team and teammates that pushed me all the time, obviously, but being able to have that consistency and camaraderie and then also be experimenting a little bit in that 800 meter distance for my last two years. What uh, position did you run in the four by 400? Did you, you know, what was that sequence? Are you anchor? You know, where were you at in that? Um, for those who've ever seen me come out of blocks in any of my track days, I, this will be humorous, but I was the lead leg. So I popped out of the block, but we kind of had the mindset that if I could just not trip coming out of the blocks, I could hopefully make up some of the distance later. Oh man. I had a, that is, that is probably one of the more stressful ones. Cause you got right. You come out of the blocks, you get, you know, cause if you start poorly, it, it is hard to make that up. Right. And you got that first initial handoff, which is probably a, a little stressful too, but yeah. How hard is good. the handoff? That's what I, I'm always curious about. Like yeah. Ted and I were actually watching the, I don't, did we ever figure out what that was? Was that like, yeah, nationals? I did. I looked it up. So okay. just, uh, yeah, I think it was just the college women's nationals was just this last Saturday. Yeah. yeah Saturday. Saturday. <clears throat> but I was wondering, they were doing some, I think we just maybe finished the 100 relays, you know, right when we started watching and, there was a, a missed handoff and it made me wonder like how hard is that handoff? I definitely can't speak to the sprints. Those are the tough ones. They're okay. kind of flying blind and it's a perfectly oiled machine with the four by fours that I ran on were you, you could uh, do an open handoff, you know, you could be looking and reaching back and mm -hmm. I guess it really just gets trickier if everyone's coming in at the same time. So that's where you can, throw some elbows and bump around a little bit, but most of the time it's definitely not as on the edge of going either way as those four by one, four by twos. Sure. Did you run, did you run these same events in high school? I did the 200 and the 400 and then those relays as a high school athlete. So I thought I'd be a 400 meter runner in college. And I think as a lot of, athletes find everything's more competitive. People are better. People are faster. So we were thinking 400, maybe 600 in college. I would definitely not be able to keep up in the 200 meter. So I never really thought I'd be running the 800. I had run one or two of those in club track in high school, more just for training and expanding depth training effort and being able to tap into that. But I never thought I'd be a mid-distance runner, for sure. Did you, in high school, was track like a big priority for you? Like, was that one of your big focuses? Was the goal to be a collegiate runner? Yeah. To be honest, I don't know if I thought about running college track. I think I just was so focused on those seasonal goals. I wrote my goal times on sticky notes and had those in my bedroom as a high schooler and my track team was family. They were friends. That was the social group. And I did club track in the summer and I just loved it. I wasn't a very um, physical athlete. And so I didn't thrive in basketball or soccer, those kind of settings. And so track was just 
kind of my place of peace and where I found a lot of joy and passion. So I did the Olympic lifting sessions where they would do in the off season and increase weight capacity and strength performance and then doing indoor track and outdoor track. So was there like a competitive drive in high school as well? Or was, it, was it just simply like you just enjoyed it so much like that was your main anchor? I was really competitive. You know, I would um, be, I, I'm a creature of routine. I thrive in routine and having that, what I know what to expect and um, enjoyed holding myself accountable to those things. So I really lived for showing up to practice and knowing what I had to do. And I probably could tell you, I could count on one or two hands how many days I've stayed up, you know, till past 10 PM as a high school or collegiate track runner. I got my Jeez. sleep and yeah and did those things. It's funny from my perspective as both, uh, you know, in the fitness industry and I am a, you know, a big fan of sport and sports in general. And you start to see like some correlating things with people that are invested in different sports. Right. And so when you say you're a creature of habit, I think track is probably, yeah, the perfect fit for you. Right. Like it's routine and it's rhythm and it's, you know, being able to perform, you know, consistently. Right. And so, mm-hmm. You know, it's just little things that, you know, kind of the light bulb goes off in my head when I hear that. But it does sound like you're committed. What uh, what did the conversation look like when when you, was it your idea? Was it your coach's idea? It sounds like maybe a little bit of both when you decided to, you know, go from, from you know, the mid to short distances, 200, 400 to more the 600, 800. Was that your idea, coach's idea, a little bit of both? What did that conversation look like? Yeah, in college, so after my sophomore year and starting junior year, reflecting back and being able to assess what have we accomplished so far, where do I want to go? And I think also being able to have that realistic self-assessment. And I think of myself as I appreciate feedback and coaching really well. I think I like knowing what lane I'm in, so also being able to have that real conversation of, here's where you could go in the 400 meter and is that enough and where could we change direction and would that actually open up other avenues or opportunities for success whatever that definition Mm -hmm. of success is and so I think saying yeah shoot let's look at the 600 success has been more in xyz than the 400 so what if we did the 800 what if dot 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 so that's good and then I think too, it's, um, I think like my, my question is, you know, you'll have to maybe educate me and maybe some of the listeners too, when it comes to being, you know, declared like an all American, um, in track and field, is that something that like, you know, I know some sports, there's like a committee that votes on it and whatever, whatever in Mm -hmm. track and field, like, is it reliant on like, I know obviously it's reliant on performance, but is it like you show up to a meet and this, I have an opportunity to become an all American at this meet or is it something at the end of the year that you're kind of awarded? Yeah, it's a meet. Your mm-hmm. eggs are all in one basket. The end of indoor season and the end of outdoor, you have qualified and are headed to the national championships. And you have an opportunity to step up and perform that one time. And that's where, you know, if you fall in the prelim and you bump around too much and you get tripped up and that's you know, anything can happen if you aren't on point on that one meet. So it is a high pressure meet in that regard. And I think for that makes it even more exciting and the opportunities even greater because of that. There was something that I heard um, 
and I don't really necessarily even remember what the analogy was for, but it was, it was about, um, you know, performance. And, and like you said, you have to show up and if you trip and it, you know, it's just all reliant, like you still have to like go big or go home, right? You, you put all your chips into the middle of the table and it was like when Usain Bolt was on his tear, right? And you're like, oh, Usain Bolt, obviously the most fast person in the world, right? The fastest human to ever run, whatever, whatever. And you're, you're going and you're watching him in the Olympics and you're like, oh, man, he's probably going to win. He might break the record, whatever, whatever. But you have all these other guys in lanes next to him. If he trips and falls out of the blocks, yes, he might be the, like, he's not, he doesn't get the gold medal. He doesn't get a retry. He doesn't get an opportunity. So like... The pressure is still on, even if you're expected to have success. And it sounds like you had success leading up to, you know, these races and, you know, then indoor, outdoor, and you're, you have the potential to become an all American. Is that sounds like something, is that something that you knew going into those events? Like this was for the opportunity to become an all American. And if so, like what, uh, what did that mindset look like? What, you know, what were you thinking about the day before during the, you know, during warmups and before, you know, right in the blocks. Can you take us through that? Yeah, I, I felt so much consistency between high school experiences, collegiate, post-collegiate, where I'm so fortunate. My coaches and the atmosphere I trained in, absolutely, there's a high pressure stake at these big meets. And sometimes it goes my way and sometimes it didn't, but it was also just another meet. Right. And yeah. so I think being able to show up and push the boundaries in workouts Monday through Friday and do all of those small items on the checklist and treat practice like a meet and treat a meet like practice. So absolutely, there's a respect for the meets and when those race days show up and mentally having to acknowledge what it is and what you're towing the line for, but also I think there was a lot of comfort in acknowledging how many 800s have I run. I'm just showing up and towing a line. And this actually isn't any different. It's another two laps outdoor, four laps indoor around the track. And I can't bank on anyone else's performance or them doing anything else. I can only control what I know I've prepared to do. And so I think there's two two absolutely different aspects of thought process for it and one of them is acknowledging the pressure but also saying hey I've done this so many times before and at the end of the day it's my spikes on two laps of a track so here we go it's like that like, run, like, real, run run your own race right it's like literally mm -hmm. comes from that it's interesting with like track and field you're you don't have like this direct competition like you know with football like there's an opposing force that's very evident right someone's literally trying to stop you to do something and that's yeah, applies to soccer defense. or field hockey Nobody's or whatever. Like, yeah, you're not yeah. trying to dodge somebody on the track, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe you are a little bit in, in some of the relays. Dodge some elbows. Yeah, yeah. But, but like, especially on those shorter distances, there's no one, like, directly standing in your way. So it's literally, like, like you said, like, you and your cleats and, you know, whatever the distances you're doing. And there's probably, like, this uh, anchor to that. I feel like I've said anchor three times now. Um, <laughs> but, like, there's anchor to that. Like, okay, I can really ground with that. Like, I know what I'm doing. It's just this, I've done it X amount of times and I just have to execute. Is there like a comfort in that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the very, very beginning of developing the passion I had for track was my sophomore year of high school was the first year I ran and made it to the state meet and 
had no idea what I was doing. And my high school coach gave me that entire pep talk you just shared, Cody, and said, run your own race. And there were two absolute beasts of runners in the final of state. And, you know, the best I was going to do was going to be third, but we just focused on, I literally was in a lane the whole way. It's a 400 meter. There's no cutting in and just being able to be competitive, but also know what's my goal for the day. And the home stretch, the last 30 to 50 meters, they both went out, they raced each other until they both blew up. One of them pulled a hamstring, the other one just hit a wall and almost crawled across the finish. And I was so blessed. I ran my own race and Mm -hmm. won state as a sophomore because of that coaching my coach had given me of, you know, you can't control those other people, but understand where we're trying to go today or what our goal is today. And it might be different than anyone else's. And yeah, on another day, I might have finished third or lower than that. And it just happened to be that it ended up the way it did. That's so interesting. I think too from, yeah, I think too from an early, you know, like maybe you've thought about this, maybe you haven't, but I'm sure you have in a way, like at a young age as a sophomore in high school, you learned that like it, the, it proved itself to you that you can run your own race and have success and you don't have to, you know, you can put the blinders on. We're using a lot of analogies here, right? <laughs> run your own race. Stay R- running's so perfect for. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of analogies but, come from running. Yeah, but you're right, right? Like it, it was successful for you. You didn't have to, you, you succeeded by, by, you know, just doing what you could accomplish. And I think, when you think a lot of like, you know, top performers in whatever industry, if we want to use sport, basketball or business, whatever it might be, like a lot of times it, to be successful, you're not asked to do anything that you haven't done before. Like, you know, like if you're if you're going to take the game winning shot in basketball, it's it's likely not going to be like a behind the back half court shot like you've you've spot up from three and you've taken and you tried that and you've made one probably before in your life. Otherwise you're probably not on a basketball court, right? Like, or whatever it might be, if you have to give a speech for a a potential business client, whatever, you know, like you're going to practice it and all that stuff still is going to bring nerves because you care and you want to succeed. But in the end, it's something that you've done before. Well, speaking of like what you've done before, I'm curious, especially at at the collegiate level, what does that training look like? And I know, it's very team based and there's probably a structure with that, but can you give us kind of a rundown on what's a Monday through Sunday look like on average? And we'll call it, we'll say in season, right? Um, Cause I know out, out of season is quite, quite different, but what's an in season kind of week look like preparing for a meet as an example? Oh, wow. This is going back into a, a decade ago. of <laughs> track work. I'm going to have to pull out my track log. Um, man, I think, you know, getting in speed at the beginning of the week. So I'm probably going to be missing some of my days here. I'm a human who lives on sticky notes. So recalling 10 years ago of memory, I'm going to be rusty for those track athletes who are still at it. But I think being able to have speed work on Monday and hard workouts, either Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday, Friday, looking at getting in, depending on the week, in season or off season, a couple of those high volume workouts and, there's also easy runs, so recovery runs. Um, a lot of the times when we would do lifting Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6 or 7 a.m., and we also had afternoon track workouts, and Tuesday, Thursday might be two easy runs that day, one in the morning, one in the evening, and then the classic weekend long run. So Saturdays or Sundays getting, I think we would shoot for eight, six to eight miles as mid-distance mm-hmm. and sprinters, and then having an off day in there and 
certainly that's evolved um, from when I was a collegiate runner to post-collegiate to then what my training looked like in the last few years of increasing that distance, but having kind of that every other and being able to tap different muscles. So using different engines too. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that, and I don't know that much about, you know, collegiate track training, you know, but I was surprised that you're running eight miles, you know, at the end of the week, uh, for a longer distance run for, you know, folks that are running 600 meters, 800 meters. How did that kind of did, did everyone like doing that? Or was that more of a, like, Hey, you got to do this type of, uh, feel. Yeah, I, wasn't great at it. I always had headphones in and was listening to some great jam and playlist to get me through it and being able to get an hour long run in and have an easy, not an easy pace, but be at that consistent pace, I guess, being able to stay in that zone and have that just to use a different part of the system, right? So not sure. using the, the same as the speed workouts or the race pace workouts and being able to still get that, um, get that cardio in. So I, I wasn't great. It was great when you could connect with teammates and we did a lot of runs as a mid distance group as four, six, 800 meter runners. And I think that also then not to jump ahead, but that evolved into my desire in hindsight, when I was done with track of saying, what am I bad at being patient and doing long runs? And how do I want to push myself there? Well, let's talk about that. That's a good, maybe segue to that. And you know, you, was it a year ago that you completed a hundred mile race? Is that right? Can you give us the date on that or the month? Year? Yeah, I know 2020 seems like it didn't really count as a year. So it, it was in 2019, okay. October of 2019. So about a year and a half ago. So what was the, maybe you had already alluded to it. What was like the, yeah, let's do this. Let's do a hundred mile race. What was that like? I kind of, I think this might lump me in with a lot of other people, but I had read born to run. I know that that started right. The whole barefoot running trend, but what I kind of took from it was being able to in the cheesiest and best way. I can do those things that are impossible and I just need to convince myself of that. So even when I was still competing after college in track, I kind of always had that voice in the back of my head of someday I would love and hate to try an ultra marathon. I couldn't even imagine running a marathon. And um, after the 2016 Olympic trials, I decided that was the end of the road for me in track and field. And I didn't really know how to navigate that, but I knew that the next step would be trying to push myself in that way. I had no idea how I would get there, but um trying to plan that and create that long-term strategy of how do I get to my goal? Well, where did you start then? So well, it sounds like 2016 was kind of where you kind of switched gears a little bit. What was that first step? Was it just going out for a run every now and then? Like, what did that look like? Was it more formal than that? Yeah, I definitely had an athlete crisis, right? So I didn't know how to navigate my relationship with running. Um, I didn't have to do track workouts every day. I had no reason to do that. I was kind of having this self-identity crisis. So I had that probably for all fall and all winter 
I wouldn't run, you know, Eric would head out for a run in the winter and I'd be like, Oh cool. I'm going to be drinking coffee on the couch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Can we, can you share who Eric is just for context? Yeah. My boyfriend, Eric. So he also is, he is an 800 meter runner. We are both competing at Iowa and he still is competing professionally. So we have always had a good relationship with being able to, you know, running has been a part of our home for a long time and he would go out to do his workouts. And I think I would occasionally pop out to title boxing or to yoga and being able to, I don't know, explore what I actually wanted to do. So mm-hmm. long story short, and then he's, he's actually been my coach through all of this. So all of my marathon, ultra marathon, hundred mile training plan have been from pushing Eric to take a chance. And again, I guess that's kind of, the theme now, isn't it? Me getting a coach who takes a chance and mm-hmm. explores an area they're also new at. So he wrote my training plans for those. But we started with uh, a marathon just over in Peoria in 2017. 2018, I did my first two 50 milers. And then 2019, did a 50 miler and then my 100. Awesome. How was that first marathon? How'd that go? Was there any like significant event, like any emotions that were tied to that? Yeah, I wanted more. It it I was so lucky. Everything weather was perfect, situation was perfect. It was a really easy, laid back but alive course. It was just Peoria, Illinois. I just wanted to do something to have as a training run but be in the atmosphere. Eric really pushed me to do a marathon that was timed so that it would get my headspace back in that race mentality sure. and have those nerves. So I felt great. I didn't bonk, which was really lucky. Um, I finished the race and was like, oh, I want to keep going. (laughs) Did you have like a goal time that you wanted to meet? Um, Did you meet that time if you had one? I just wanted to finish. I just kind of wanted to see how my body would feel being in that space for the first time. It had been, you know, a year since I'd done any kind of race any kind of organized race so just exploring how i think i also responded to that mentally and emotionally absolutely go ahead ted no that's i i think this is all very interesting and look i'm i'm not going to try to compare myself to you know a two-time all-american and a three-time big 10 champion but like i think that athlete crisis is a real thing and i've heard a lot of people kind of talk about it and even and i feel like i even deal with it you know i'm just a high school athlete who loved you know played all sports and and then after high school, you get into whatever you get into, you know, whether it's rec league, pickup basketball. And then eventually, like, um, I had, a, you know, Cody and I, we have CrossFit backgrounds and I, you know, I tried to compete in CrossFit. And then it's like now I have two kids and I still very, very much love the the chase and I love the grind and I love to work out. And it's kind of it's kind of silly sometimes to think about, like, working out competitively, which CrossFit is at time, like, you know, competitive CrossFit and but I don't have the time or the energy to devote to it. And so for me to like mentally, like take a step back from that has been a challenge. And, um, it sounds like, um, it sounds like you, you had a little bit of a struggle with that, but you were able to kind of find this, this marathon ultra, like little bit of, you know, stepping stones to kind of lead and kind of guide you a little bit. I want to hear before we got on, you were talking a little bit about uh, about your boyfriend Eric, and you said you actually leave for Olympic trials. You said tomorrow or, or the next couple of days or so. What is he? You said eight hundred meters. What is his? Um, what are some of his accomplishments? Because I think that's cool too. And then uh, what? Uh, 
Tell us about the Olympic trial process. Yeah, so he also, I the numbers are going to be rusty, but he is a multi-time um, All-American Big Ten champion. The guys' track team had won Big Tens. So being able to have those kind of accolades, he's set American records, um, world record relays, and the accolade list goes on and on. But he's a phenomenally consistent runner and has been running the 800 meters professionally since 2012, um, which was his last collegiate season. So we leave for the Olympic trials today as soon as we hop off this podcast together. Um, And we hop on a plane to Eugene, Oregon. So there's three rounds for the 800 meter. The first round is this upcoming Friday. And for any event, um, those are going to be qualifying. So those change. It might be the top X many people in each heat plus the next how many fastest times. And then you qualify through the rounds Friday to Saturday, Saturday to Monday. So it'll be a few rounds of that day by day. Yeah. So, so, so my next question is, you know, he graduated from the university of Iowa, he said in 2012. So he's not a young buck anymore. Is he, and he's probably competing against young bucks. That's pretty, I mean, is that, and is he kind of an anomaly in that sense? Is that common or what, you know, what does his competition level look like? A lot of young runners, the collegiate athletes, right. Are, we were all just talking about NCAAs and it's insanely amazing watching those athletes and those times and performances. And a lot of those people go pro after, or you might have a few cases of where they'll, run professionally and and their collegiate career early, but you get such a wide array of people competing at the trials or at the national meet each year um, outside of college where you might have a 17 year old and you might also in Eric's case, right. Having people in their thirties. So being able to um, approach that and really lean into experience and he travels a lot and runs a lot of 800s each year internationally and nationally and being able to really lean into all of the race experience and also consistency in training. So um, as I said, he's still with his collegiate track coach who's given a lot of consistency and reliability through that time. So it hasn't been a huge wavering back and forth in training strategy. I wonder, and it makes me think about, you know, the aging athlete and usually the hardest thing from my understanding, my perspective is recovery, right? So has that changed both, you know, maybe from your perspective, watching him run his 800s from 2012 to really almost 10 years later um, professionally, but also for you, how did that look, you know, and it's hard to compare apples to apples too, you know, running, um, you know, 600 meter versus running. 50 miles or a marathon or a hundred miles, ultimately, what does recovery look like to you over the, you know, the last 10 years? We both joke that we're getting so old when we wake up in the morning, right? You have all those aches and pains. So that definitely has happened more often now than it did over the last 10 years. And what it looks like now is just being more in tune. I also think that's the benefit of getting older and sure. being an, you know, being a more experienced athlete, athlete being whatever you enjoy doing and what you love doing day in and day out. But I think understanding your body better and what you need can change a lot. You might not need to do the same training to get to the same place 
that you needed years and years ago. And so I think having a foundation and also just listening to your body, but I know I experienced knee issues when I first started doing distance running and I had been someone who did Olympic lifting all through high school and college. And then it was realizing that my body actually needed, I started doing a lot of bar workouts and I thought that, you know, I immediately saw all my knee pain go away and I haven't had knee pain since. So being able to also understand how to shift for what my body needs year by year and not really having it be just a blanketed go-to. Yeah. And you're saying, so you didn't run through knee pain. You stopped and you figured it out, resolved yes. it. Okay. I just want to make sure that's not just going to go away overnight. Yeah. I think just for people listening, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, take some ownership and, and kind of figure out what you need. And maybe that's some strength training, some bar work, whatever the case may be. Are we talking like, maybe just to clarify, are we talking like bar B A R R E? Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's what I thought. Absolutely. I've never tried that. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, I I just absolutely loved, I started going to some bar classes at Downward Dog mm-hmm. here in town, and I just, you know, it, it felt really accessible to me somewhere where I was already going for occasional, very occasional yoga classes, and bar definitely felt out of my element. It was a lot of low volume, right? I was maybe holding two or five pound weights or none at all, but a lot of balance and core work. So mm-hmm. pulsing, maybe you're doing a hundred squats, but you're, you might be changing your Stance. foot direction and toes in, toes out, pelvic tilt, or what are your arm motions and really targeting those muscles. And so for me, I really found a lot of benefit in my lower body and how I saw that affect the carryover to me being able to run more healthy. Absolutely. So you're, you're now pain-free in terms of the knee and did that start like pretty quickly or was that something that like after maybe you've done a couple of marathons that started to, uh, show? It started, I think after the marathon, as I was getting into the ultra marathon mm-hmm. training and my disclaimer is I also hit a point where I felt really at peace of being done with Olympic lifting. I mm-hmm. felt loved that. And for me, I was ready to do strength in a different form. And for full transparency, I just stopped doing strength work. So I was just loving running and in a place where I was vibing with who I felt I could be on a long run. And I wasn't supplementing that with anything. So that's a very obvious recipe for disaster. But being able to also acknowledge, I loved to pop in for boxing or a random workout with coworkers or teammates or friends and my body, I wasn't setting myself up for success when I was just running day in and day out and then expecting myself to be able to pivot in a lot of high intensity boxing classes and not have any strength training to, mm-hmm. to fall back on. Well, it sounds like you kind of adopted a more well-rounded approach towards just fitness in general, right? Um, another thing I'm really curious and before I bring it up, we're, it's going to tie in with this shameless plug for the IC weightlifting summit that's going on. If you guys have haven't checked that out, check it out. Um, where should they go to find more information about that, Cody, real quick? They need to go to either our Instagram or Facebook page. There is no website. So Instagram or Facebook, I see Weightlifting Summit. We'll get you there. There you go. So do a lot of runners implement Olympic-style weightlifting, or is that just something that, that you – was that kind of one of, one of your passions, and how did you get into that? 
that was just a standard for track. So we would have scheduled that. That was a practice, right? So it was your morning lifting and that happened two to three times a week, depending on being in season or off season. And I did that through high school and college. And certainly it varied a lot as athletes get more mature and um, you can handle more weight and being more experienced in that. And what your events are is going to drastically change it as well. But that was just the normal part. So squats, deadlift, cleans, all that good stuff, and being able to also do medicine ball work. So it wasn't just all with a bar day in and day out, but it went just drastically from being a really balanced, what a track athlete needed. And then I told myself, I'm not a track athlete. I'm ready to be done with all of that. But I unfortunately didn't carry any of those, any of that knowledge with me. Well, you did in a sense though, because you were able to reflect back and say, hey, that was really useful. Yeah. What did, um, so the training methodology or the Olympic weight style weightlifting, did that, um, was that different for sprinters versus long distance, mid distance? I mean, what kind of volume did that look like? Cause I, I mean, not knowing a, a, a lot about training for track, I, I could definitely understand, understand and see why a sprinter would want to be more explosive and train some of those Olympic style lifts. But, um, yeah, what, what did just real quick. And, and again, you don't, like you said, you're the, you're the bullet or you're the, uh, the post-it note note person, sticky note person. What, uh, what were just some of the really vague differences between somebody who was maybe strength training for like the shorter distance versus the longer distances? Yeah. I think of doing squats, right? I think I could get up to my max is probably 245 or 230 and being in that range of max squats. And those are skills that I needed for four by four and 800. Whereas I never ran a 1500 or 3k. <laughs> that sounds terrible to me now. Um, in college, and those are, I am not a coach in any capacity, but that's going to be tools that would actually be irrelevant for a longer distance runner to have. And certainly, muscle is going to carry weight with it as well. And it's not going to serve anyone if you have tools that you actually don't need in the type of training or the races that you're doing. Whereas, if I leaned more into the lighter weights or low volume, high rep, that's also not going to help me get out of the blocks. And we all knew I could use all the help I could get for that four by four. So being able to have coaches who understood what kind of skill sets you needed for your specific event. Absolutely. So I, I want to segue a little bit to this now to kind of your current job, right? So you're the, uh, you're the manager of the Iowa River Landing Lululemon store in Iowa City. Um, how did you get into, you know, working with Lululemon and, uh, and what, uh, what does that look like? What do you love about your job? Yeah, I, it all happened during that crisis I was referring to after <laughs> 2016 that put me on a beautiful path towards what I love doing now. So after I finished racing at that point, I was in a job that was extremely flexible for being an athlete who traveled and had plans come up at last minute, and it wasn't something I wanted to do long term. So I did a lot of self-reflection, read a great book, Finding Your Own North Star, and just did a lot of deep dive into self and what my goals were, or maybe not even that, but what lit me up today, or what do I find joy in, and how can I make that long-term, and having great mentors who took time to coach me through that. So it just so happened that one of our friends from collegiate track who was 
in the know or had a relationship with the team who was opening the Lululemon when they were first coming to Iowa City gave me the hot tip that I should check them out. And so I did and was able to connect with them and kind of start that path of transitioning careers um, all at the same time that I was rediscovering a lot of different things about myself, including what I loved about running and where I wanted to go with a career. And it led me here today. And I just love being able to be in Iowa City at the place that I work at Lululemon and have so many connections and feel really fulfilled by community and, you know, personally and the people I get to meet through the job I'm lucky enough to do. You guys do an amazing job of lifting up the community, especially like the health and wellness community. Um, And I've always appreciated that um, being and living in Iowa City as well. So I know we got to, I want to talk about, because I know she has to go in like 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So I do want to talk about the 100 mile race, like both in terms of like the lead up to it, the training, because I've seen you train because you'd run by my gym uh, quite often. So I've seen you run by a decent amount. So I want to talk about like your training leading up to that. And then I want to talk about like the event, like that day itself. And then obviously like kind of that post-reflection um, component. So, you know, obviously training for a hundred mile race is different. Potentially, I guess, I don't know. I've never ran a marathon even. So I don't know. Um, that's where we, we kind of differ. I also ran uh, Red born to run and I'd had no urge to <laughs> run further than a 5k. Um, but what does that look like um, training for a hundred mile race? Like when do you really start to shift gears, um, you know, in terms of how far you are, are out of, you know, from that event, do you start picking up your miles quite a bit? Do you do 10 mile runs, 20 mile runs? What does that look like? It definitely was just high time commitment. So when I think back, it was sacrificing a lot of social time and family time. And again, it's, there's something right or wrong for everyone in any moment. So for me, that was something I was willing to do and had people who are really generous enough to, um, to allow me to have space and time to do that Um, work, family, friends, and all of that. But it was running six days a week and I was extremely devoted to having one complete off day every week. So Tuesday through Sunday training and the shorter runs would be maybe starting at seven miles and those would be because they would be high tempo or high paced tempo. Mm -hmm. So being able to hop in and do however many minutes on, however many minutes off or a mile on mile off. Um, that's not an actual workout. Please don't go run that, but kind of looking at what that up tempo work looks like. And so that would range from seven to 13 miles as I built up. And then the rest of the days might be two, six mile runs or, being able to build those. So all of a sudden there's a weekday where I'm doing a 13 or 15 mile run in the morning before work. And we would always double back Saturdays, Sundays. So thinking of my max run was only ever 30 miles at one time. So even though if I was training for a 50 mile race or a hundred mile race, I actually only ever ran 30 miles in one go, but we would really Eric built into my training schedule that Saturday and Sunday in the best way, we would kind of obliterate my body, but that also gave me a sense of confidence where I might have 25 miles Saturday and then have to get up and do 25 miles on Sunday mm-hmm. and really have that sense of peace going into a 50 mile or hundred mile race where, holy crap, I've never run 50 miles or I have to double that to a hundred, but being able to say, okay, when the going gets tough and my body's still sore and stiff and it's 12 degrees out, I can absolutely pull through and do that. Yeah, Absolutely. 
did you ever, so leading up to that and you're putting all this miles in and there's a little bit of an unknown, right? Cause you just said you like, you never ran a hundred mile race right up to that point. Was there like any like waiver in your conviction of doing that? Like, or was it like, I'm in it, like I'm fully into this, like no waiver at all. What did that look like? Oh gosh, no, there was lots of wavering. I think the closer, the closer the hundred mile race got, it was a lot of, I think normal self doubt, but Mm -hmm. I had a lot of those moments of who the hell do I think I am that I think I can run a hundred miles. And I think that's where just being able to fall back on um, the support system. So there is, there is an incredible trail running group, Trail Sisters in Iowa City. Um, haven't connected with them since pre-pandemic, but mm. um, you know, meeting these humans who, no matter what your goals are, there's a sense of stability. And I just had an incredible support system in some of those runners who took the time um, to include me and also write support and encourage and motivate and be like your cheer squad. And then the people I work with and Eric and my family being able to say whether you need an emotional hype squad or, you know, Eric would be very logistical and say, look at these workouts and look at these runs that you did. And the proof is in the pudding. The facts are there. It's going to be fine. And the other part of it too is saying, okay, we're just going to have to try it because honestly no one knows what's going to happen after 50 miles. Yeah. And self-doubt's like human. It's human nature to have self-doubt. We all have self-doubt about something almost constantly, right? Whether it's, you know, a physical pursuit or our job or relationships, whatever, the list goes on and on. Um, and having that rock, you know, the person there, that's the emotional support, you know, someone saying, Hey, look at this is like, like data, right? It's here. Like this is, you know, you're good. That's very powerful. So you wake up, was you said, you mentioned like running in 12 degrees. So you did the hundred miles in what month? That reference was just for winter running. Oh, okay. Iowa winter running. I'm not a treadmill runner. Um, unfortunately, oh, yeah. I don't have the, the mindset for that. So those were just long runs in the winter, but I did my race in October. Okay, October. It could still be a little chilly, but so you wake up in October. It's the day of the race. What's going through your head? Immediate dread. <laughs> I woke up with a pit in my stomach and immediate dread. And that just <laughs> lasted until the gun goes off. It's not mm-hmm. as a pivotal of a moment as in track and field when the gun goes off, but mm-hmm. the gun goes off. And I think that all just fades away. And it's like, okay, I'm just running. I, I mm-hmm. do this. I can run. And I think also I felt really open. My goal was just to finish. And I wanted that so badly. I wanted that in my bones. And I think also knowing as in some capacity, all athletes do, you could be the most experienced, the strongest, and sometimes days just aren't your days. So not in the sense of getting myself a way out, but kind of relieving that pressure of saying, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm going to push myself as much as I can. And I know this could go 50 different ways, but I'm willing to be on the ride. Yeah. And that goes back to like what you're saying in your collegiate career or high school. It's like, Hey, I'm running my own race here. It's just like you said, you know, spike to ground and then go same thing, right? Foot to ground, go. And what happens happens just putting, you know, that effort in. So when that gun went off, did that dread just immediately leave in that like hundred percent or was that kind of still with you? Um, as you climb through those miles? The dread went away, but I think that experience ebbed and flowed, mm-hmm. ebbed and flowed a lot throughout the race. So 
I remember at mile 39 hitting a mental wall where I actually put music in and we couldn't have um, pacers or runners come and join us from our crew until mile 50. So it was actually the first time I ever ran 50 miles by myself Mm -hmm. because I'd had pacers in those 50 mile races. So I hit a wall and it kind of freaked me out thinking I'm hitting a wall before mile 50 and I should be able to make it to mile 50. So now I'm a little nervous and that was really tough. But I think, again, just I need music. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm a martyr and keep running without music. I'm just going to pop my headphones in and put on Lady Gaga and keep going. And then having friends hop in with me and be able to run after that and just have so much grace where Yeah, after mile 80, 85, we would walk for three minutes and then run until our watches dinged for a mile. And that's how I got through the last 15 miles of the race. But being able to kind of have that pulse check every stage of the race and say, okay, now I feel terrible. And here's how we could kind of combat that together. What's the justification? Go ahead, Ted. No, no, you're good. You uh... have that sweet, sultry voice. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, I find that all really interesting. And, and I, it, you alluded to it there. It sounded like a mile 30 or whatever. And, you know, I was, I was curious because I know that the, the race will have its lowest low. Was, was that the lowest low for you? And, and can you be, you know, would you mind opening up and be completely honest? And this might be difficult. Was, was there a moment where you're like, I am not going to finish this? Or was it just like, this is really, really hard? I mean, did you, did you have to balance those thoughts in your head? I think my lowest part was hitting that 80, 85 miles. And, and for me, you know, that was happening at, after midnight. So I finished my race at 3 a.m. And I briefly mentioned before, but I go to bed at 9 p.m., 9.30. And, and I do my runs in the morning. I'm a morning runner and I'm striving. I'm a morning person. And so for me, I kind of knew that I could expect that. And it happened. I never hit a point where I thought I'm going to quit. I need to drop out. Um, There's no way this is going to happen. It was more just kind of being in that agony and sitting in that pain of Mm -hmm. this is really tough and it might even be tougher than I could have prepared myself for. And it's going to drag on for quite a while and it's not going to happen quickly or easily. So when you finish the race, what are your thoughts like you cross the finish line, like how do you feel? What's you what what you know? What's the physicality you feel like? Um, what's the mental state? Seeing the finish line, it was hilarious. One of my family members was filming. Eric was my last pacer, so we actually crossed the finish line together, and or he ducked out right before it. But I felt like I was floating. You know, I I knew I was going slow, but I was like, oh, this is. If I compare this to an hour ago, I'm cruising. cruising so yeah. I kind of pictured myself cruising across the finish line. And I'll tell you in the videos, I am like waddling with straight, <laughs> straight knees, straight legs. And that was hilarious. But I think just feeling kind of shock crossing the finish line. And then genuinely, I think my body actually went into shock because it was just a full all over body shakes. And I immediately just was freezing and my mom and one of my girlfriends was trying to strip my racing clothes off and get layers of sweatshirts and the blankets on. But just having that out of body experience kind of, of mentally hitting this 
thing, this mountain that I'd been dreaming of for years and the shock of crossing a finish line. And that means it's done. And I did it. And then the physical reaction that I actually feel like I had no control in was just my body doing its own Out of thing. Body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so this was middle of the night, early in the morning, you said, right? What, uh, yeah. what did, what, what, what events happened following the race? Was it like, were you on a little bit of a high or did you crash and just like go to bed? Like what, what did, what did the post race look like? Yeah. I felt like I was on a high. I thought, Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, it's 3am. I'm going to be awake forever. And then you accomplished family, like all... an amazing feat. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of being on that high, that adrenaline rush still going and we all get in our cars and this was over in, we finished near Moline. And so we had to drive home at three, three thirty AM after. And if you think, yeah, I had people with me who could drive, but these humans had all been awake mm-hmm. for 20 hours plus yeah. as well. Um, in downpour rain, in sunshine, and like through the night to help me. So we were all wiped and Eric stayed awake to drive us home. Everyone else and myself kept bobbing in and out of sleep. And um, I just crashed. We got home and one of my girlfriends carried me up the stairs and like helped me move my knees to get me into the shower. And, you know, we had our Eric and our friends like helping carry our Yeti full of PB&J sandwiches and everything inside. And I just hit a wall. It was just a broken body the next day. So we're two years-ish, right, um, away from that event. So looking back now, what's your like biggest takeaway, you know, that still like resonates with you um, on a high level? I think taking the time to explore what I love doing and why I love doing it. Um, honestly, right now I'm in a huge running funk. I think coming off of that race, there's the emotional down after a big goal. And I think that combined with the pandemic and different losses that everyone experienced in some capacity. And I had it in some capacity in 2020 um, through a curveball or a wrench in that. And I think trying not to be hard on myself and think back of the tools I learned in the best part of training for that hundred miler and saying, okay, you know, I went through this in 2016 and I went through hard stuff Mm -hmm. in that long goal race in 2019. And what I learned is just giving myself space to re-explore why I love doing what I do, Um, acknowledging I feel like myself when I'm doing it, but it might show up differently in different stages of my running relationship. Well, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think that down is probably very, very natural to a lot of people. You know, we've even talked about already on this episode, but I think something to kind of keep in mind and we'll kind of, unless Cody has something else to to bring up, we'll, we'll probably end on this note. Like, like that is something that, you know, Bethany Praska can put on her mantle forever, right? That accomplishment, like that's, that accomplishment's not going away. You will have that forever. And, and yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of, it's, you know, like, are you going to be an all American again? Right. It's kind of probably similar down ebbs and flows, but you know, I think you should be proud of that. And you know, I know that you got to get going here pretty soon and we, we thank you a lot for coming on and sharing the story. That's, that's a pretty, uh, in-depth explanation of a pretty, I think, uh, major accomplishment. Yeah. Do you want to do rapid fire questions quick? I think we can literally do rapid fire. Sure. Right, let's wrap Let's wrap it. Fire. Be nice. You're, you're, yeah. So just to get to know about you a little bit more, just kind of on a, an easy level. So, um, 
yeah. Wrap it away, Cody. All right. So the first one, do you have a go-to karaoke song? The more embarrassing, the better. And if you don't do karaoke, what would that karaoke song be? hundred <laughs> percent. I've not done karaoke, but the songs picked out, it would be the Eurythmics Sweet Dream oh, because yeah. I don't have a singing <laughs> voice. And I feel like Annie Lennox sits in that one tone where I Monotone. might be able to mask it to stay there long enough to have a good performance. That's a good one. All right, Ted. I dig it. Uh, where's the best place you've ever traveled to? Oh, I loved being able to go to Budapest, Hungary. Oh, that's on my list too. Yeah, my list too. Do you have a favorite obscure holiday? So not your traditionals, but I need like an obscure one. Do you have like one that you just love? And no one's less is like, I don't I didn't even know that was happening today. Oh, man. I guess short answer, no. Okay. All right. Well, what is your favorite yeah. holiday? I love Christmas. I think more for, I'm not a late night owl. We've already covered that. So New Year's doesn't do anything for me. So being able to gather with loved ones. So I think when I think of Christmas, I think of being able to eat really good food. There's always hot food, desserts, um, snow outside, inside with loved ones. Think of Christmas tree and pine needles and candles and all of the homey, cozy stuff. So I just think of gathering being what I think of with Christmas. So gathering with loved ones. Yeah, Christmas definitely leads like the holiday power rankings as far as like trademarks. Like Christmas has like this and this and this and this and this, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, my wife's the same way. She, lo- she loves Christmas. Um, if you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? So when the pandemic started, Eric's brother lived right next door to us and we all just kind of hold up together and we created Mac and Cheese Monday. So every Monday we make a huge barrel of vegan mac and cheese and that lasts us for a few days, but we've really, I'm going to say perfected the art of mac and cheese. (laughs) It's awesome. Um, Other than the obvious necessities, what is one thing you could not live without? coffee yeah that that's almost even borderline obvious no not to discount (laughs) yeah that's i mean that's my same answer too i think yeah yeah get me going in the morning before runs before a workout all the time uh who's the most famous person you've ever met oh man That's a tough one. I would think of being a kid on the train and meeting Ed McMahon. I don't know if that rings a bell from back in the day. And I remember um, being able to shake Obama's hand when he came to speak at the University of Iowa on his political run. And so I don't know if they're the most famous, but those would have to be people who other people would recognize their name. Yeah. Which one stands out like in your mind more like Barack Obama or Ed McMahon? Cause when you, I mean, I think Obama is obviously more famous than Ed McMahon, but when you're a child, it might have like a different yeah. you know, reaction. Shoot. I don't think either. I, this might be late to the answer, but um, I don't know if either of you know who Dean Parnassus is, but he's <sighs> an ultra marathoner and North face athlete. And so mm-hmm. again, not the most famous to the general public, but for one of my mm-hmm. 50 mile races, it was put on by North face. I was a runner who brought my book with, so that after my race, when I was incredibly demolished and sweaty, 
I hunted him down to get him to take a picture and sign my book. But he's been an inspirational figure in the reading that I've done to develop as a runner. So even though those other two were more famous on paper, yeah. I'd say I had like a geek out moment meeting Dean Carnassus. That is the answer then. That's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Last one. If you were given a day free from responsibilities, how would you spend it? Oh, I've been loving taking our dog on hikes. We'll go to Woodpecker or Hickory Hill. So I think a very accessible free day, I'm not talking like chartering a private jet or something, but yeah. I think of bringing coffee and going on just the beautiful trails that are around here with our dog and being able to be outside. If I get to be picky, fall in Iowa, no humidity, perfect weather. So that would have to be my answer. Yeah. Rocking some comfortable athleisure, athleisure wear. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Athleisure wear, you bet. Yeah, thank you. Uh, on that note, uh, thanks so much, Bethany. This has been great. I really, really, really enjoyed kind of talking about that ultra stuff. And uh, good luck to Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank right. you. Thank you. Cody and I will be cooling it down right after this, but um, we talked about it briefly there with Bethany, but I just wanted to one more time plug the IC Weightlifting Summit taking place at Big Grove Brewery on August 15th. Um, we're still going to release a, a few more details here leading up to the event, but um, if, you're, if you're looking to volunteer, sponsor, participate, or just need any more info on it, please feel free to reach out to us. Um, a lot of the things that we're kind of excited about here is just given given the opportunity to showcase kind of what the Iowa City area has to offer when it comes to comes to weightlifting and we hope to you know introduce some people to to the barbell a little bit to some coaches in the area and it should be a really really cool time so so stay tuned for more details um, on the IC weightlifting summit and then now uh, Cody and I are going to cool it down all right, and final segment here on Practical Wellness Radio. This is our, uh, our cool-down segment. We answer a cool-down question submitted by listeners. And if you want to uh, send us a question, if you have a question, you can send it um, on any of our social medias, you know, Instagram, Facebook, or, uh, or email us at info at practicalwellnesscoach.com. And today's question comes from Kendall. And Kendall is curious if we have any tips for choosing a quality protein if we want to supplement. And protein is probably the definite like most common supplement that people are interested in and in adding into their diet, whatever it may be. But um, maybe before we really, really dive into protein, like let's just talk about supplements in general. Um, and Cody, you've got some facts. You're kind of, you and I were just even talking about um, supplements. What are some, what are some things right off the bat when you, when you think about somebody who might be interested in, in supplementing? Yeah. So um, yeah, I have facts. Yeah, I have thoughts, maybe more, maybe more accurate. Who knows? It's maybe, um, up in the air in some context, but, um, and I was also wondering too, I think protein is a very high, highly sought after highly, you know, wanted supplement in the industry. I would probably put in like <clears throat> multivitamins, vitamin D, things like that up there as well. Those are pretty common. Um, but yeah, let's, yeah, you know, we first want to, let's take a step back and think about maybe the why, why are we taking the supplement? And that's going to be contextual. So just understanding that, um, not taking a supplement because you think you need to, um, is going to be really important and understanding where that kind of fits in the, um, health and wellness, overall health kind of hierarchy here. So we think about maybe a pyramid, really the first thing, the base of the pyramid should be sleep. Are we getting enough sleep? Um, 
getting enough sleep, again, that's going to be relative to the individual age, um, activity level, things like that. But obviously the kind of the standard answer is going to be eight hours um, of quality sleep. Quality is important in that as well. And that's going to be more powerful than probably any pill or supplement that you're going to take. And then going up into that next tier of the pyramid is diet. So what you're consuming, how you're consuming it, why you're consuming the food that you are um, is really important. Again, there's going to be a high context here as well based off the individual goals, preferences, availability, environment, so on and so forth. So it's going to be really important. Obviously, we encourage our clients to eat a holistic diet with generally low processed foods um, to reach most overall health and wellness-based goals. And then that next tier is going to be training. How are you training? Are you training too much, too little? What's the stimulus that you're putting on your body? And then obviously all the goals that go around that. And then finally, at that very top level is going to be the supplements um, that you may or may not need to take when there's going to be, again, that why aspect. And the why can go into uh, maybe you have a food sensitivity, right? So maybe you can't, you know, you think about maybe fiber. You typically don't need to supplement fiber unless you're not adequately eating enough food that contains fiber. Like maybe you have an aversion to that. Maybe it doesn't make you feel that great. Whatever the case may be, maybe that would be a context of eating fiber. Um, or maybe you have an eating preference um, as well, right? And that might um, be a situation where it would be uh, recommended to supplement with something, right? And I think about um, vegan rights, uh, eating patterns would be maybe an example of that. We won't get into that in specifics because that's a whole another topic. Um, but that could be another maybe why as well. Or maybe you just simply can't consume enough, say in this example, protein in a day that you feel is enough for you to succeed in whatever your physical or health-based goals are, right? So that'd be another another aspect as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously protein, you know, what I was, and just kind of reiterate some of those things, like I, I sometimes I feel like we're trying to dodge some questions sometimes because it's, you know, we often right. say like it's goal dependent, or it's contextual, like, but mm-hmm. that is the, that is what it's all about. Right. But I think that I would, I would, I would bet though that almost, almost any, any individual can, can probably intake more protein no matter what their goal is. Right. Notice I didn't say can take supplement yeah. protein, right? I yeah, mean, we definitely want to prioritize the food breast, first because that's going to be a little more holistic in terms of vitamins, nutrients, and to make it of, of, mm-hmm. of that um, compared to like just uh, a whey protein or a soy protein or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Exactly, exactly. And and again, like without trying to circle back too many times, but you can correct me if I'm wrong here too, like if we're trying to get stronger, if we're trying to lose weight, two the most yeah. common goals people have kind of in this fitness realm that we're in like i don't think it's a bad thing to try to consume as much protein as as possible granted it's gonna be hard to hit it especially if you're eating much, whole foods. but at the same time you know where you can run into yeah 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 you can run into yeah. some like there's like a tolerable lim- tolerable limit too much protein, i think it's like, like around said, two really... or 2.3 grams maybe per yeah. gosh I'm, i can't remember if that's kilos or pounds i think it's kilos you think it's pounds i think it's i think it's yeah, that could that could be right because I think it's like one point two. Yeah, so the one point two. I think the two to two point three is in, in kilograms. Yeah, so that's that could be about right. Gram. That's pretty high. That's a lot. Yeah, and so you know you just you know that is high, right? So you think about you know I will use myself as an example like two hundred fifteen pound guy like two hundred fifteen. Yeah, yep. that's one per one. If we're looking at one point two, now we're up to two thirty two, right? And so. And so that's a lot of protein to consume in a day. And, um, 
and which is why I supplement with a protein supplement. But you have a lot and, of strength-based uh, goals. You're but not, again, you know what I mean? Like, so it's um, kind of contextual yeah, too. Does you, a person that um, exactly, exactly. You know, is getting probably uh, a gram or maybe even a little less, maybe even 0.8 grams per body weight is probably like the lower I would recommend. Um, I'd usually try to get kinda, people yep. to get at least a gram in um, per body weight. But again, that can be hard if – if you don't have like this strength-based goal, like maybe you don't need any more than that, right? To maintain, to be healthy and to function well, right? Again, there's a lot of, a lot of factors mm -hmm. into that, right? There are for sure. You're, you're right. And I am, uh, I'm like the dude who's always trying to get stronger. It's, it seemed to slow down a little bit the last few years, but no, but you're right. And so let's just say you're what, like a hundred and let's say the average male is maybe 170 pounds and you said 0.8 is low kind end. of where we want to be. Yeah, exactly. The low end. And so that's, that's 135 yeah. to 140 grams of protein a day. And that should be attainable, you know, definitely with whole foods alone, but it might be nice to have a, and that's you know, the thing I thought protein, too, is you don't have to use it every day that you can supplement if you don't have, you know, you know, options. Mm, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, you were telling me about, um, there's some resources online that people can look up for, for supplements yeah, in general, or maybe. So my favorite resource is to look up supplements to get um, up are, to date um, research data, recommendations, pros, cons, et cetera, is going to be examine.com. Um, it's very research-based, very clinical, but it's very digestible. Like you don't need to have like this uh, background in biology or anything like that to understand the information. It's very well presented. There's a lot of color coding. There's a lot of, you know what I mean? Just like green, good, right? Uh, red, bad, things like that. So I think that's really, really great. And it even explains like, yeah. even if you yeah. wanted to take a deeper dive, it explains that stuff too. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the go-to source and that's been around for a while. I've known for about that for, mm -hmm. I don't know, eight years or so. I can't remember where I first came across it, but um, that's been around for a while. Yeah, just flipping, yeah, just flipping through that a little bit. You know, I would, I'll be the first to admit, like, I think you and I, um, at times, do a good job of balancing each other out. We, I mean, we both, we both have a lot of experience in the fitness industry, but you have a very, very, very much deeper understanding. Maybe sometimes of the, you know, kinesiology, human biology, whatever. You know, yeah, it's like, no, but. Yeah. But, you know, when I look at it, well, part of it too, is just like, like knowing said, about those resources, type in a supplement, whatever. Cause I got, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sitting here um, reading like a physiology and, uh, book every day. Like, you know, and it's been, I, I graduated no, right. with my physiology degree in, you know, 2013 yeah. and you know, that stuff doesn't necessarily stick around, especially as like an active coach. Like you're not using most of that stuff. You're not using most of the clinical stuff cause I'm not in a clinical setting. So you forget most of it. So knowing like where the resource is mm -hmm. to, uh, find that information again or get a refresher, I think is probably the biggest tool or biggest strategy for that. <laughs> yeah. And as a guy who took communications classes and broadcast journalism, it, you know, so just the point I was trying to make is you go to examine.com, you type in a supplement and it gives you like a two sentence write up about it where it's like, you know, oh, this supplement is yeah. made for this, for this reason. And maybe you might want to take it. Right, and then you're like falling asleep. Right. It's not like, okay, the cells in the body transfer, whatever, what, you know, it's like, it's very much, yeah, it's very mm -hmm. much layman's terms. And so I appreciate that. And that'd be, so, and I think too is like, so kind of, you know where to go now to you get more information on about a specific stuff. supplement, you know, what, what does the research say? Is this worth my money? Right. That's always a big thought. Um, in my time, um, 
but once you kind of figure out, okay, yes, uh, taking a protein supplement is for me, like that's just one step. Like, okay, what supplement do I take? Like what brand? And that's always really challenging, uh, probably because the supplement industry is very largely unregulated. Uh, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's like 1994. They passed like a, an, uh, a bill or something. I you have to look it up. But anyways, um, long story short, the FDA doesn't have to approve um, supplements to you know, to market them. So you and I can make a supplement and just start marketing it, marketing it and selling it. Right. Um, so that can be a big problem. Um, so it's on the consumer exactly. to then maybe mm-hmm. parse out quality, which does take some time, right? It's on your shoulders, but it's worth doing, right? Um, you don't want to be taking in things mm-hmm. that you don't know is in there, which can be a problem sometimes, right? They can pump some of this stuff with fillers, with extra stuff to make it seem like it's working better sure. um, and, and things like that. So that's going to be really important. So usually you want to at least first check the manufacturer's website, right? Where are you getting this? What's the brand? And see if they have quality control practices that are in place. An example of this would be, do they have protocols? Um, do they test for contaminants? Are they really transparent with these things? That's going to be really important. If they're really closed off, you're having a hard time finding that information. That's probably a red flag. Um, there are other... Um, companies websites that actually test these yeah. uh, products these these third uh they're, they're tested by third parties so these products are tested by third parties um, an example of this would be um, if you go to consumerlabs.com you can search uh, different supplements on there uh to see what they're saying and then obviously you can go to the fda's website too and see if the fda sent warning letters to maybe these specific companies that'd be a big red flag as well if they've gotten multiple warning letters or a warning letter in general we should even say uh, just one would be a big red flag so those are a handful of things that you can do to uh, see if this is a quality source uh, for your supplement or maybe in the context of this initial question for your protein Yeah, and so I think that that's exactly kind of the uh, the right end from Kendall, what she was kind of I think asking, right? And so we kind of danced around it a little bit, but you know that's that would be probably the the best place to start if you're interested in in, in finding a a new supplement. Again, keeping yeah. in mind your goals and keeping in mind that we we want to make yeah. sure it's it's a supplement, right? The definition is, is in the is in the word mm-hmm. itself, right? It is a supplement to your current diet and and regimen. Um, so like you said, those two, those two, just to reiterate resources, consumerlabs.com, examine.com. Um, as far as other supplements, Cody, um, what are, what are maybe at the top of the list kind of for the general population, some, some supplements that we might. Yeah. I kind of call that insurance, you know, just, you know, I think the multivitamin is a great place to start, right? I think it doesn't hurt. Yeah, no, it's a great way to look at it. And, and really it's like you start pricing some of this stuff out, like you said, for insurance or purposes, like you can yeah. take a multivitamin for four cents a day, you know, whatever those little tablet, you know, right. You can get your multivitamins and, yeah. and I would still, I'd still look those up and, you know, make sure you're, uh, you're getting them from a credible resource and all that. Too. I'm a big but fan of vitamin D. Can you think D. of any other like um, general one, supplementation like, that maybe the general you know, population in these should consider? Midwestern states, Northern states in the winter, vitamin D is a big one. Um, just cause you're not outside, obviously again, like just like food, you know, we get vitamin D from the sun naturally, and that's going to be the best source to get it from. But obviously, you know, in the deep dark winter, it's a little harder to do. So I would recommend vitamin D and I actually take vitamin D all year round. Um, I'm not saying you should do that, but that's something that I do. Um, 
another one. I mean, those are kind of the primary ones, you know, multivitamin, vitamin D, uh, fish oil. I take, I know you take that as well. Um, Yeah, that was the one. Um, well, yeah. again, like, I do your own research. Some, which we know about but what I would recommend is going to examine.com and checking that out because we do want to. I do want to wrap up pretty quick, otherwise it's going to get too long. So go to examine.com on that one, and then I do want to, oh. as we wrap up, because I, you know, I have to go here yeah, pretty yeah, quick too um, to coach some clients. But so check out examine.com. Check out fish oil. Um, another one maybe that you can maybe research to would be magnesium. Magnesium supplement. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, Ted. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I take a ZMA supplement. It's got uh, zinc, magnesium, B12. And I take that before bed. And I think, you know, just last couple points here, I think that we appreciate and, and we know that like magnesium is important because it'll supplement our sleep if we struggle with sleep. Fish oil yeah. can help yeah, with cognitive skills. Up. The vitamin D can help with immune deficiency. And so all these are kind of, you know, especially us, yeah, especially with us at uh, Practical Wellness, and we're trying to be, quote, practical about all this, holistic about all this. Mm. Like, if you're sick, you can't train, you can't become healthier, you can't become more fit, right? And so, you know, when we're thinking about supplements, we're after supplements that'll, you know, one, like we talked about earlier, help move us towards our, our goals, whatever they may be, two, keep us healthy, three, help us sleep. And again, just keep in mind that these are supplements to, our normal diet and regimens. Um, that's all we have. If you guys need anything else, feel free to shoot us an email again at info at practicalwellnesscoach.com. Thanks, Kendall, for the question. And thanks, Bethany, for coming on the show. We'll talk to you guys next time. Mm-hmm.